Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. Today's guest is international best-selling author Hugh Howey. Hugh has had two dreams in life, to write a novel and to sail around the world. In 2009, he finally completed his first novel. His seventh published work, Wool, became an international bestseller and has been translated in nearly 40 languages. His career as a writer is taking him all around the world. He has met amazing readers everywhere he goes, and he has seen some extraordinary places. Now he is embarking on a journey to complete a second dream, that of sailing around the world, albeit with a bit of uh, intermission, which we will talk about. And I'm so excited to be speaking with him. Welcome, Hugh. Thank you so much for having me, John. Yeah, so yours is, you've become like the ideal interview guest because you've been a bookseller, you're a world traveler, you've done the, you're doing the thing of uh, book to uh, TV slash movie and a best-selling author. So I'm able to combine like so many different aspects for the aspiring writer to listen to that, that one plagues into their dreams and aspirations, as well as just some common sense things that you've learned the hard way. So um, I guess to start with, I'm just interested in your earlier work ethic. Uh, you gained, you talked about in your bio that you've, or one of the videos I watched, doing all forms of jobs throughout your early life. And that's something I did. So I've got real strong reality that with high school and college, every year I made a a habit of doing a different job so I could then, at that point, my goal was to build my own house. But I learned all kinds of different trades and all types of things just because I figured it'd come in handy in the future. So tell me about that. Yeah, it's funny. I meet so many writers who don't come from like an MFA background or they set out to be creative writers and and pursue that as a as a goal through their education. Instead, they kind of went off and had life adventures and and uh, almost unfailingly, uh, writers come from being avid readers. But I think the people who have really interesting lives or diverse, diverse backgrounds have more to write about or can write about a variety of people more realistically. So um, having so many different jobs helps me in that, you know, some of my characters are, you know, servers or they're tradesmen and they're from different countries, which I've been lucky enough to travel and live in and work in. And yeah, I just think of, you know, when you when you write stories, it's going to be peopled with a wide variety of occupations and characters and experiences. And the best way to do that is to have a lot of your own. I know that's that explains a lot how you were able to do it so thoroughly in wool. I mean, you've got however many dozens of floors in the silo there, each one with its own profession, and you're able to just like go on. As if, okay, I'm, we can talk about this now. Okay, now we're going to talk about that. So you've got your computer geeks, you've got your engineers, you've got all these different things that you're able to talk with so facilely. I think two things that really helped with, with writing wool in the silos is working in a corporate structure where you have departments that have to communicate with each other but don't do it very well. Yeah. And also working on really large yachts where it's a very stratified world. So the engineer and the deckhands are all like down in the bilges, like keeping the engines going and keeping the boat clean, even under the boat, scraping the bottom, getting the barnacles off, uh, making sure the props are okay. And the owners are up on the top deck, lounging in the sun, you know, drinking mojitos and uh, <laughs> using the hot, the hot tub. And there's like every level in between. And um, I, I went from working on big yachts like that to uh, roofing 
in Virginia and work in just a back-breaking trade. And um, that's when I was doing a lot of my kind of writing in my head, like coming up with stories that I would later set down on paper. And I think everything I learned from sailing around on my own little sailboat when I was in my 20s to working on yachts uh, for 10 years really informed all my writing. I see it over and over again when I look through my books. Yeah, I definitely see it in your writing that you've got this corporate world mentality that you've you've conveyed in there, plus all the just individual separate knowingness you've got on the, the trades. The other thing that was really amazing about you is the fact that you worked as a bookseller and at Barnes & Noble and then at, at an indie. So how has your experience working at, at bookstores um, had an impact on your uh, writing choices? Uh, you know, every, every writer's journey is different, but I can tell you for me, I don't think I'd be a professional writer today if I had not worked in bookstores uh, for, for a few different reasons. Um, especially working at the independent bookstore later in life when I was trying to make it as a writer, so much of what I learned about the industry and about publishers and my, my expectations were really set by two things, by watching us return books after six months that didn't sell. So I realized that as a published author, your book might get six months on a book, bookstore shelf. It's going to be spying out. There'll be one copy. And if someone doesn't magically buy it, it's going to get returned and the bookstore is going to get all their money back. And that was like, you know, the idea that if you if you publish a book, it's bookstores are selling it forever is just not the reality. And and so that made me not overly eager to give away my rights to publishers during my career. The other thing that really helped and the thing that helped the most was meeting New York Times bestselling authors who would come talk at our store. And I would just get to know them because I was the one setting up their event and helping, you know, uh, liaison with anything that they needed. And I was always curious about what their lives were like. And their lives were that they taught creative writing at a local university. They, they had some other job that paid the bills. And these were people who had hit the New York Times list. And so I learned kind of more about the income of authors, that it could be $50,000 every two years, which isn't much once you pay your agent and taxes and all that stuff. It's, and that also helped me um, have a really long view of my writing career. Like this wasn't, you're not going to write a book and retire. Um, Oprah's not going to call you. You have to do it because you love it. And you have to keep doing it for a very long time without any hope of, of doing it by, by anything more than a hobby for a long time. Mm -hmm. And that, those two things like really gave me the long view and allowed me to be patient and not give up like I see some people do when they don't have instant success. I get it. So, and that makes a lot of sense what you're saying there too, in which we're going to get into your chosen path for, uh, for publishing, but on, um, working at, at a bookstore. So that was in what years? Oh boy. Um, I started working at a Barnes and Noble in, uh, 1995 or so down in Charleston, South Carolina. But so that's kind of like when Barnes and Noble were the the heyday of of B Dalton and Walden Books started transforming into the superstores. So that's when Barnes and Noble really started taking off as the superstores. Yeah, they were exploding everywhere. Um, like I was in Charleston, we had we had no Barnes and Nobles, and then like you know over a two year period, we had three. They were just popping up left and right. My mom worked at a Barnes and Noble in um, Spartanburg, South Carolina. She ran the store and she 
was asked to open one in Charleston, and I worked in a different one in North Charleston that was opening. So I was there when they unloaded the first pallets and helped put the bookstore together. And that was a job I worked while I was um, uh, going through school. Wow. I must admit, I, I kind of miss those stores and those days with the stores. I and mean, obviously, that's not going to come back, and it's not the way it is now. But, I mean, I've been in, in publishing since the uh, mid-'80s and um, been through the explosion of the Walden Books and B. Dalton, and then as it changed to, or, um, changed to Borders, which obviously bailed it's gone you know, now, yeah. a while ago, but Barnes & Noble. And um, it was just fun. I went, we did a lot of in-store events. It was great doing them, meeting authors and, and all the different event personnel at the stores. And then because it's so long, you know, you'd see them and you have some, some of the sports store personnel would move up the, the uh, ladder there for the corporate ladder. So they became the buyers and people would meet later on when we go to the corporate offices. But uh, now that was the time period. So we had a lot of success with one of um, Hubbard's books, um, Owen Hubbard's books, uh, Battlefield Earth. And you'd mentioned before that you've, you've fallen his fiction career. I, well, that book is one of my favorite works of science fiction ever. I've probably read it uh, eight times or so. And yeah. I've got to, I got to where I could read it in a day because I know it so well. Like I'm reading every, I'm reading every word. <laughs> I'm not skimming, but it's like the better you know a book, the quicker you can get through it. And it's a 1,200, 1,300-page book. Yeah, it's a big but, book. Um, it's sad that the movie wasn't as good of an adaptation. I think his science fiction is brilliant. He should be more widely read and better appreciated. Thank you. Yeah, he's, um, it's interesting how you um, mentioned that there is, you know, the, the fact of getting the book out there, because it's sold. Now it's, it's getting ready to start pushing the 5 million mark. As, as a book, and the audiobook won the Audio Award, and it was a, uh, as at the time when we did the, the multicast, this was been now in 2017 when the Audi had, had like 67 actors, and it was just unabridged. And so that tended to Amazing. bypass somebody adapting like what happened in Hollywood. Yeah. You know, um, and also, that book made the Time Magazine's like 100 list of greatest novels of all time, and it totally deserves to be on there. I get, I, I push that book on so many friends. Like, they're always like, name some of your favorite books, and that's always in my top five. And I just try to impress on people, like, you need to read this just to see how, how far he can take this one character from like a simple beginning to not just having, I don't want to spoil the plot for anybody, but he doesn't just have, you know, foes to conquer on Earth, but like, much bigger series of events that he has to figure out and handles it all in one novel. As a writer myself, I, I think about the pacing and the, the plotting of that book and just marvel that he pulled it off. It's really brilliant. That's great. Yeah, he wrote it in eight months. And um, one of the things I loved about it too is that the, the protagonist, Johnny, he went to a library. That's where he learned. Yeah. You know, he went in books. That's how he learned. So it was this a real... A real staunch mm -hmm. supporter of books and reading. Knowledge and was, yeah, his ultimate weapon was knowledge. Yeah. Um, and and the, the people, the bad guys in that universe, they're uh, looking down on s smarts and knowledgeable people was their, you know, Achilles heel. So uh, it just appealed to me at the age that I first read it. And every time I've read it since, I've gotten something new out of it. That's great. Well, thank you very much on that. So... I watched your video at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab and found that quite humorous about how 
these are all the, like I said, the brainiacs. And you were talking about how you, know, you, you started in a direction of, was it science or medicine? Physics. Yeah, I was studying physics. Physics. And then, um, so now you're talking to these guys here and, and how it was scary that these guys were up reading all night and then they're coming in to do this stuff here on their research. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, like, I, I didn't like getting emails from that lab saying like, man, I was up till like three o'clock in the morning reading your book. And I'm like, you should be getting a good night's sleep. You guys are doing like, you know, nu- nuclear uh, bomb research and, and fusion. And you have like, a, there's a, this whole actual bomb demo uh, facility on campus, which I got to see, which is crazy. These huge vaults that they put bombs in and then close the vault and explode things just to see how it, what kind of uh, yield they can get. So crazy, crazy stuff going on. That's crazy. I don't know if you, do you know Kevin Anderson, Kevin J. Anderson? Yeah, we've we've crossed paths a couple of times. He's I like him. He's super nice. Yeah, he, well, he worked, worked there, there for twelve years. That's incredible. Yeah, so some science fiction authors are actually smart people who come from science, <laughs> and I am I am not. <laughs> <laughs> well, Kevin was one of those authors that you know, most kids they were you know they wanted a, a bicycle or a, a gun or whatever for Christmas, and he would save up to get a typewriter. You know, that was his beginning. He was, he was, he was like locked and loaded and becoming a writer at an early age. And just like that was his whole thing. Now he dictates everything that he writes. But, um, yeah, it's um, uh, 12 years there at Livermore. But So it gave him, that's a lot of his back, back data that he, that he can use for his, the science and his stories. It's also just important to have a job that you enjoy because it frees up a lot of time to work on your art in your spare time. Like if you're doing something you don't enjoy, I think it's hard to, to get any writing done because it feels like kind of, I don't know, to me, working in a bookstore never felt like a job to me. Yeah. Um, so writing didn't feel like arduous on top of that. Just felt like I was doing two things that I loved. That's, which is awesome. So now, wool. So I'm gonna, cause we're gonna be swinging a lot of these things and putting them all together in a, in a little package here. But, um, so how did wool come to be? It's like we've talked a bit about your past history, which I figured had something to do with it on your the various jobs. So how did that just – is that – that's the first in the series, even though it yeah. has an earlier on the next book? It has a weird, weird backstory. I was writing novels at the time, and, and I had a bunch of more ideas for novels and I had time to write them. And one of these ideas was this um, underground – civilization that just had one screen that showed them the outside world and they had to trust whether or not that screen showed them an accurate view of the world and that all came from just uh, this was at a I was thinking about this at a time when people were just getting smartphones and spending a lot of time looking at their screens and looking at computer screens and TVs all day and uh, noticing just that bad news circulated more quickly than than good news and I felt like that was affecting the way people see the world, that mm-hmm. we were um, getting more pessimistic about the world than we needed to be. And um, this was a novel in my head, but I just didn't have time to write it. So in between a couple other novels, I just dashed out a 15,000-word a novelette, like kind of this in-between short story and novella, and called it Wool, put on a cover art that I made in five minutes in Photoshop, <laughs> and made a print book using tools at CreateSpace online. Sold that for like $5.99 and then made a, a 99 cent ebook. And I had published and I went back to writing my next novel 
And that little short story or novelette quickly became the best-selling thing I ever wrote. Like it just went absolutely bonkers to where it was selling a thousand copies one month, and then three thousand, and ten thousand, and then fifty thousand. So you put this and, was on Amazon. Yeah, it was all on Amazon. So it was, it was an ebook and a paperback. You could buy a short little right. paperback. Again, cost six dollars, and so few of those are in circulation that now they sell for like a thousand bucks. These little paperbacks. Sure. I think I only have like one or two copies left because I keep giving them to people who are important to me or whatever. Yeah. Um, and uh, so when I saw the re- the reaction to that short story and all these reviews were asking people were asking me to write more in this world, I, I stopped writing that novel that I was working on and wrote part two of this series, which was a little bit longer than part one. And I quickly had to outline a novel based on this short story, which has a, a kind of a rich tradition in science fiction, mm-hmm. like books that start as short stories like Ender's Game exactly. and Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit 451 and iRobot and things like that. So uh, it came out in five different parts, and those five parts were all to like the top of the charts on Amazon. It's selling really well. And one reader suggested I combine them into a novel just to save them the click so they could just click one thing to read it. It was really that silly. And um, so it was just a simple matter of putting the files together. And I put just a yellow fallout shelter sign on the front and made a, it was just a terrible, terrible cover. Again, five minutes and threw it up for this one person who suggested I do it. And then instead of buying the five different copies, everyone just started buying the one novel. And at this point, sales got so crazy that the book hit the New York Times bestseller list. Again, self-published with no professional editor, no professional cover artist, none of that stuff. Just, you know, my mom was editing for me and friends were reading and sending in typo fines and things like that. So completely bootstrapped, hit the New York Times list, got a film deal with Ridley Scott, 20th Century Fox, got an agent, and started getting offers from publishers to buy the rights. Like my world changed just in a matter of like three months, went from publishing that short story to um, writing full time and making quite a living at it. So then that's obviously the point then where you're able to um, say goodbye to your day job. Yeah, which sadly, you know, when I was working at the bookstore, I kept fantasizing part of, and I wouldn't let myself think about it too much because it'll cripple you. But I would, as I was getting some better sales over the over the months and years, to where I was paying a few bills a month with my regular sales and my previous six published works, and I started thinking, man, if I ever could like make a decent living at this, there's nowhere I'd rather be than sitting behind this desk at the bookstore, because I was already getting fans would come and like hang out and talk to me about the books, uh, people who worked at the university or in the community who had bought my books at a little craft fair, they knew where to find me. I'm sure your store and manager loved that. <laughs> he did, actually. Really? So Bill, yeah, Bill Pillow, that my, my boss who hired me, I, I, was, I was doing a book signing in the bookstore one day. And he and I started talking. We had a lot in common. And we really hit it off. And he said, you know, I'm hiring an assistant manager right now. You should put in an application. It's only 30 hours a week, the job. It only paid $10 an hour. Like, it was almost no money. Uh, and it gave me a lot of free time to sit and think of plots when I wasn't you know, talking to customers, shoving books and dusting books and boxing mm-hmm. them up. And um, so he and I were pretty much best friends at the time. I was, we would play golf all the time and hang out and uh, spend time outside of work. 
so he was super proud of me. But I, you know, I kind of dreamed that if I became a best-selling author, I would just keep. I knew other best-selling authors worked on university campuses, and I would, I would just work here, and and you know, this would be my little corner of the literary world. This little bookstore in Boone, North Carolina. Wow. So then wool. So wool is book number one, but then book number two is leads up to wool. Yeah. So when when I finished the five parts, I had this novel uh, that we collected into one book called Wool, and there was a lot of demand for a sequel. But <clears throat> and I've made of some choices that I think are like artistic choices rather than commercial choices. I never wanted to get into a situation where I was writing the same book over and over again. It's a good career for the people that do it, but I was just, that just started feeling like drudgery or work to me. Mm -hmm. And the end of Wool is, I thought, so good, such a perfect ending that if I just picked up where that left off in the next book, it really, it really takes away from the power of that ending. It's like, okay, guess what? That wasn't the end. Tomorrow you have to like, you know, do these things. And, um, and so the second book shift, I just, I just took on a challenge of like, here's how the world ended, which is something that a lot of post-apocalyptic books don't do. Um, and, and maybe there's a reason, great books. I'm not, there's nothing wrong with them. Like, but like Cormac McCarthy's The Road, um, a, a lot of books like that just start in the wasteland and you never see what happened. And I, I took it on as a challenge to like, let's tell an interesting story that shows how this world ended and how the world of the silos began. And um, it allows that first book to stand on its own. And honestly, it might be my favorite book of the series. Like my, it's my agent's favorite book, and a lot of people who the second like book? it a lot. Yeah. So it was a huge risk, and I think it, for me, it really paid off. I'm really happy I did it because there's um, there's a great argument for reading all three books and getting this incredible overall view. But there's also fine just to read the first book and let it stand on its own. Mm -hmm. You're not going to pick up the next book and and see what happened the next day. So it works that, both ways. I, now I'm, I'm definitely want to read the second one. I read the first one, obviously, in preparation for this. And I got to say, because I do, when I do these podcasts, I always read uh, at least a book, you know, if it's a novel or a couple, if, if they're shorter, uh, of any guests so I can just know what I'm talking about when I talk to them. And I'm all over the place, you know, with murder mystery, thriller, alternate history, fantasy, science fiction. So I started reading yours, and at the beginning, it's like, I get to like somebody and they die. I get to like them and they die. I said, <laughs> what the heck? And I said, and then I, I looked, did some more research on it. I said, oh, my gosh, I got to get through this book here. But, oh, no. And then I read that Rebecca Ferguson was going to be uh, Julie. Yeah. And I said, they're not going to have a major A-less star be somebody that's going to be killed off in the next two <laughs> chapters. So then I went so on sure. and I got totally addicted to the book then. But I was like... I get to like somebody and they're gone. I get to like somebody and they're gone. Man, what's happening here? But it really sets the tone of that whole period and what's going on just brilliantly. Thank you so much. But like I said, I just finished reading prior to that was Codename Verity by Elizabeth Ween, whose podcast I just did before yours here. And that's an alternate history. That's like World War II in uh, Britain and, and uh, uh, Scotland. And um, these two women that are are female heroes, and it's like totally different story, you know, and different genre and everything. So it was like, whoa. But it's um, 
it was great, and I'm really inter interested to read Volume Two because that's one of the things I liked about Battlefield Earth. You actually get how it happened, and now you're now you go a thousand years later. At least now you know how they got there. Yeah, exactly. So that's 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 quite cool on that. I'm just curious now on female protagonist. You know, obviously, what you've got there is the as the final protagonist there in Wool is an amazing woman. And I'm, I'm assuming she's going to have more to say in, in the volume three, or maybe not, but in volume two, she, I mean, in the first volume there, she was, she really grew up and, and uh, it turns out to be she was the perfect person to be there as, as the main protagonist there. Do you see a trend in that? Or is that something that, that you go to? Or it's just interesting, because I've also been reading another person, Michael Anderle, um, with the Cretherian Gambit, his his uh, protagonist there is is a woman, and like, like I said, with Elizabeth Ween, with codename Verity, uh, Maddie and Queenie were the protagonists, and several others. It seems like too. I've been interviewing. Yeah, it's a question. I didn't notice it when I was writing this. I think it's become a big trend um, around the same time. Not not a trend that I started or was following, but I think that was coming out of the the popular zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. um, I think. Some of it was publishers being more willing to say yes to to female protagonists and to publish them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think a lot of these books are being written um, and not enough were getting published. When I started publishing, uh, self-publishing wasn't very popular yet. The Kindle, I was one of the really early Kindle uh, adopters. So I think the flood was coming because the gatekeepers were all kind of toppling uh, at the same time, mm -hmm. it's easy to understand why I was doing it personally. I was raised by a single mom. I uh, am very close with my sister. I was very lucky to uh, to date, you know, powerful like badass women who are more accomplished than I was. Like, you know, the the uh, girl that I was with for 13 years while I wrote uh, Wool and a lot of other books was a a, a doctor and. Uh, I dropped out of college and she had done, you know, every kind of <laughs> postgraduate degree possible. So I was just around like really accomplished uh, women. And so it wasn't, it would have been, I think, harder for me to write about male protagonists that I looked up to because I didn't really have a lot of that growing up. I think another thing that happens in some of these stories, we, we're, all, we're all writing this hero's journey. It's a tr very basic um, construct that comes out of our shared evolutionary history mm -hmm. and our the life that, that we've lived, you know, and how we see the arc of, of human life and struggle and adventure. And a lot of the hero's journey is about overcoming odds. And unfortunately, we live in a world where, where a woman doing the same thing is more, is overcoming more odds than a man doing it because she's also dealing with misogyny on top of everything else that's going on. She's right. dealing with people doubting her because of her gender. So when you're trying to come up with obstacles for your protagonist to overcome, we live in a time, uh, especially when I was writing, where being a woman was one more obstacle. And kind of a rule of creating tension in, in fiction is like any obstacle you can create, you should. So I, I think there's two ways of looking at this explosion of women in literature, uh, maybe three. One is more types of stories can now get published than ever before, which is a good thing. Right. Uh, the other is, or one of the others, is that 
it tells uh, it tells a, a of a bigger struggle, which is a bad thing. Like we should hope to get to a future where being a woman is no harder than being a man. It's the same, you know. Mm-hmm. We're not there yet. Uh, but when that happens, maybe we'll see an, e- an equal number of uh, protagonists. The third thing is, I think this might be part of it too, is that most readers are women. And I think there's a little bit of a selecting there. And I hope that in, in all of the fights for equality that we do, at some point we also worry about men being left behind in academia because we're already seeing that in advanced degrees. We see that in, in literacy and the number of people reading and um, I hope that changes eventually. But, you know, at, at the time that I was writing, it was, um, I was living in a woman-dominated world at home and in my love life. Uh, I was writing at a time when all kinds of stories were being accepted. Mm-hmm. And I was writing about overcoming odds, which is kind of a, a, an ugly testament to the, to the time that I was writing. Wow. Well, that's, I mean, that's good. It's funny because I've been... I've re- been reporting to a, a female boss for over 30 years. So for me, it's like, I don't even, you know, it's, it's like it's, it's so not part of how I view things. You know, is that a male or female? It's just, it's very noticeable now that it's getting more female. And it's, it's great. It makes for a really great protagonist. And it makes sense because there are more female um, readers. And so... Um, science fiction fantasy and adventure obviously the i don't know the romance that may be split i'm not sure on that one there but science fiction fantasy definitely the we're getting a lot more female writers as well having successful careers um used to be i think a lot harder uh but now i think some of the top the top uh science fiction authors in the world are are females and that's uh that's kind of new yeah it's been amazing to watch yeah, it's interesting. On, on our second quarter last year for Writers of the Future, all the writer winners and all the illustrator winners for that quarter were female. It never happened before because you have no idea because all the judges see is the story or the art. They have no idea if it's male, female, age, nationality, anything. And it That's just turned out to be for the first time all six were, uh, were female. That's fantastic. Yeah. So you recently got – so you talked about how – Wool for a movie. Now, was, was it a movie deal that being proposed before the TV series, or how, how'd that work then? Yeah, the first deal we did with uh, Ridley and and Fox was for a feature film, which we went through two directors and uh, two scripts and three writers and no movie. Um, yeah, and every year, uh, every uh, eighteen months, we kept uh, having this. Um, in our contract, they could auto, like they could renew it for the same amount they paid the first time. Mm-hmm. And I was never going to get the rights back because they could just renew it forever. And at that point, they had invested millions of dollars into the writing and the contracts with the directors and all that stuff. So um, they were pretty pot heavy and they had no intention of letting it go. Luckily, I developed a really good relationship with the producers on. So Ridley Scott and Steve Zalian went in together to uh, option this, Steve Zalian being one of the great script doctors of, of all time and screenwriters of all time. And uh, every 18 months, I kept you know, asking the producers, like, uh, if you're not going to do it, man, I would love to you know, have these back. We can just let this expire, and then I can shop it. And there was no reason for them to do it, and my agents told me it would never happen. And every 18 months, they would promise me this is the – this is the time we're going to get it done. Just stick with this. Don't worry. 
And I would say, okay, but if we don't, like, let's consider letting it, let me have it back next time. And after like two or three of those rounds, they uh, finally said, like, if we don't get it done this time, we'll give you the, the rights back. And then they did, to our shock. And so we're able to go out. And, and what's amazing about this is like, they've been paying me every one of those periods. So I thought, well, it'll never get made, but I can live off of this option money every 18 <laughs> yeah. months. Uh, it was more than I would ever make in, for a book deal, you know? It was mm-hmm. like, I could have a living just not having this thing made. Um, but we got the rights back and we went out. And at this point, TV had become, I think, the better medium for adapting a big series. And so uh, we had interest from a lot of different people that came down to three that I really liked the best. I went with AMC because I really loved the team and their enthusiasm. And during the development cycle, Apple, who had been really eager to, to get this early on. This is before Apple TV or Apple Plus or whatever. It was even um, a known qu- uh, entity. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I decided like an NDA to even talk to them about what their plans were. They wanted this to be a launch vehicle, like it would come out when uh, Apple TV launched. So, uh, or Apple Plus. So when they came to AMC and said, we'd like to partner with you guys, let's do Wool Together, and we'll, you can be the creative side and we'll help finance it and, and release it on Apple. It was like two of my top three candidates had like married and decided to adopt me. And uh, it was, I'm just over the moon. Like I've gotten so lucky to have the storytelling uh, ability of both parties and the combined finances to make this like a really a huge spectacle. It's beyond anything I ever dreamed what happened in my life, really. Yeah. So are you listed as an executive producer or are you actually a writer for it, for the script? I'm listed as an executive producer. I've been in the writer's room and helped with the uh, plotting the episodes and the seasons and giving feedback and uh, I'd, I'd pop in and answer questions, but I'm not um, writing episodes. I uh, did not think that I was I, I thought, if, if anything, I would just hurt the chances that it got made. <laughs> so a lot of the decisions I made back when I was doing those deals was uh, just not wanting to mess anything up because the main thing I wanted was to see something get made. Yeah. So then with – so are the drafts sent to you for you to, like, quality check or to make sure it's staying on track and that type of thing? Yeah, I read, I've read all the scripts, and I still get them every day because they're, they're still shooting now, and uh, any tweaks they make, we're just constantly getting new versions. And I get the dailies every day, so whatever they filmed the day before hits my inbox, and I can watch like every single take that they got on camera. Uh, at first, you watch them all, but then it's like you can't spend six hours a day watching, <laughs> watching takes, so eventually you... Uh, you you watch enough to see what's what's going and get an idea of what they're getting every day and you move on. When's it supposed to launch? It's a good question. I haven't heard yet. I think we're hopefully wrapping by the end of May. And then I'm not sure how long posts will take. And I know they're already cutting episodes together as we go. Don't hold me anything, but I would think it'd be like really late this year or early next year. Right. So they're filming the full season and then they'll just roll it out? Yeah, full season. And then I think it'll be weekly releases. I think that's how Apple... Does yeah. And then you have everybody that waits till the end so they can then binge watch it over. Yeah, I'm happy. I like the weekly release thing because if you want to binge watch it, just wait a couple of months and binge watch it. Yeah. And if you like the, if you like the, all the chatter in between, you can watch it that way. 
Yeah, the problem and then, with, then binge watch it again at the end. Yeah, the, the problem with the, like I think the Netflix model, which is where you drop it all at once, is you don't cater to the people who want to have that slow release. Like mm-hmm. no one can force themselves to watch it with the rest of the world on Wednesday at nine o'clock or whatever. So I, I like the fact that we're going to have both. Sure, you can cater to both both audiences there. Yeah. How that timeline go then? So you wrote wool. And then how long after what was written that you then, really Scott said, I want to do this. And then from then, that first, let's go with it to where you are now, where it's actually being recorded. We did the deal with Ridley before the fifth, before the fifth and final part of Wool, the novel came out. Um, I actually sent them a rough draft before it was published. So they had read it and, and saw where the whole story was. But it was really early on Wow. that we had like a, a it was actually... It was going to go to auction. There was a bit of a bidding war, and Ridley and Steve came in and said, we're, we're, we don't want this to go to auction, and they made a preemptive bid. It was like, go with us or go take your chances with everyone else. <laughs> and um, kind of, a, it's a smart power move if you've got a big name to like not overpay and use your name as, a, as the lure. And uh, yeah, it worked. Let's see, that was in 2000, early 2012. Mm-hmm. So here we are 10 years. years later, and it's, it's all happened so fast for me. People like, ah, oh, it's take for, taking forever, but, man, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, Game of Thrones sat on shelves for a long time before it got made. There's been, most things don't get turned around as quickly as we see, you know, some of these big, it's becoming this new thing where a book would get adapted really quickly. It's more likely that it's sitting around for a long time before it gets adapted. Yeah. I was talking, again, Kevin Anderson and, and Brian Herbert, with the last Dune movie, that was like, that's been over 10 years. That was going, it's, it's on, it's off, it's on, it's off. And then finally, then it was a long time. And they were, they were executive producers, but they were the ones that were okaying all the scripts and making all the changes to make sure it's consistency with the actual book and that there's no variation, which true enthusiasts will be first to just absolutely crucify. So that was I one love of the, the movie they had there. I thought that, I thought it was one of the best movies I've, I've seen in uh, forever. I was just really blown away. And so uh, I can't wait to see the second one. I can't believe we got Rebecca locked in to be Juliet before. No, that was awesome. Because, I mean, the second movie will probably be coming out like at the same time the TV show is yeah. doing a second season or something. And her, her star is just rising. And I'm, I'm happy to be a part of that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was there. It was actually in October at the Rise of Future Gala Week when Kevin was here. And that was, we, we showed, that was the first week. So we showed to all the, all the, uh, the winners and judges who were here. Plus, uh, he had some of his producer friends come in so we could do a screening of it. And then he got the phone call the next day saying, okay, um, they're going to green light the, the next film, well, which he was quite chuffed about on that one for sure. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we just did so well that first week. Yeah, we, so we got... Um We've got another show that's just going to start filming. A book I wrote a while back called Beacon 23 starts filming in just a couple of weeks in Toronto. And um, what's crazy is during the pandemic, I got a green light for Wool and a green light for Beacon 23 on back-to-back days, and they had nothing to do with each other. And both have been in development for one for 10 years and one for for five years. And uh, the fact that they almost landed on the same day, the fact that they didn't land on the same day is a little disappointing to me. (laughs) (laughs) 
I'm just curious. So on, on your books, I've only read The Wolf so far, but do you intentionally write with a message? Yeah, for sure. I have so many ideas that I'm only going to really work on the ones that are interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And usually the interest comes from not just the characters in the world, which all my ideas have uh, that I care about, uh, but the ones that have themes that are that drive me to like want to spend you know, time every day working on them. So it's super important. And then when I, I write a decent first draft, but I think a lot of my quality comes from doing a lot of revisions. I'll do 12 full revisions front to back. And um, that's where all the, the, the thematic layering and the foreshadowing and all that gets put in. And if I'm not doing that and making up like for myself, even just a puzzle out of it, mm -hmm. uh, I wouldn't be as interested to spend that much time with it, making it better. So, yeah, all that's important to me. Yeah, that's good. Because like in wool, I mean, you've got to go two different ways. One is the wool they use to clean the, the glass, but also wool is like the wool pulled over people's eyes. And I look at, you know, what you just said at the beginning of this interview here, like, the, you know, controlling the, the message going out, you know, doing that with, with video, with the image of what people are seeing. Because you see stuff even in, in today's society where, you got certain regimes that are controlling the media and saying you can only see this and what it does for people who fall for it and just immediately get it. And then you got the other people that see the ruse and that creates that immediate base of, of a conflict of what you obviously have there in wool. Yeah. The, I mean, have as many meanings as I can layer into something I like to, there's even, there's several more even than that, but the having the wool put over your eyes is the, the, the biggest one for me, but there's also, you find out later in the other books that the this whole operation um, was called the World Order Operation 50, with 50 being the Roman numeral L. So uh, there's an, an acronym uh, meaning, and then there's like kind of an appeal to, you know, the sheep, the idea of just doing what you're told and following and, and being an obedient herd. Any Anything like that that you can think of that uh, adds to the meaning. Of course, you can you layer it in if you can. Sure. Uh, for me, it just adds to the enjoyment, especially for people who read things multiple times. Like yeah. I well, that's great. So now on the subject now of self versus indie versus traditional publishing. So you've gone self, or it seems like at least. So if you can talk a little bit about because now a lot of the audience here are aspiring writers, and uh, I've got. Listeners on this podcast, I think it's 108 countries right now that routinely listen to it. And so a little bit yourself on, you know, on your various options. Plus, you've got your perspective also as a bookseller, you know, of what you've seen and what you've observed. So a little bit if you can talk about all three of them and, and then why you chose to go the route that you did so that others can, like, uh, track with that. Sure. Um, I could say that. So these days, I, I don't don't even know what I am anymore because I have a lot of books with traditional publishers, especially in foreign countries. Most of my books are now with traditional publishers here in the U.S. I've done some, you know, really interesting deals over the years by not giving up my rights and waiting until people would do like five-year deals and stuff where I get my rights back, which is unusual. I would not have been able to get those deals if I didn't have the leverage of self-publishing where I was leaving publishers out of all the uh, earnings. My first deal, I, I just assumed I was going to publish my first novel on my blog and give it away for free. I didn't think anybody would actually pay money for my stories. So it wasn't until friends started reading the Word document and they were like, you should try to get this published. This is great. That I sent it around and had a small press offer me some money. 
And that was more than I ever dreamed of, like that someone else is going to pay me in advance and they'll do the editing and the cover art and mm -hmm. all that. So I was thrilled. I did, the, I did the deal. And then I quickly saw that the tools they were using to publish, I could do the same thing on my own. Self-publishing was really just coming into its own at the time with print-on-demand, uh, printers like Lightning Source and Creative Space, and then, of course, with the Kindle. And later, the Kobo, the, uh, the Nook, the iPad, there were so many outlets. Mm -hmm. So I, my second book, the sequel to my first one, I decided I was going to self-publish this. I got the rights back to the first book, which was a really lucky thing I did before my career took off. And then just started publishing everything myself from then on out and never thought I would do anything different. But eventually, I was making enough money self-publishing that I could do deals with publishers, not worrying if the sales would, were less or if I was making less money per sale. What I, what I was excited about is that I was going to reach different readers the people who shop on the Kindle store aren't the same people who shop on Audible for audiobooks, and they're not the same people who shop in airport bookstores. These are all different audiences. Mm -hmm. There's some overlap, but there's also some people who don't move between those different markets. So I've really seen the point as I've no longer had to make financial decisions of just trying to make decisions that might increase my readership and, and increase my adventure as a writer um, so that I learn more about different avenues and different ways of publishing. Uh, for me, it's all a learning experience. Right. So at, by this time, I've now published in every way possible, and I've published with Random House and HarperCollins and um, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt and um, you know just some of the biggest publishers in, in the world and gotten to enjoy working with their teams and stuff. But if I had to say which one I like the best, I just love self-publishing because I have all the freedom and all the control. I can operate at a quicker time rate. I get to work directly with my audience and my earnings per sale are much higher. Sure. So, because I've, I've talked to a few of the other authors and they've done the self-publishing or like I said, Michael Anderley, when I interviewed him a while ago, he's one that created the 20 books to 50K. So he started off self-publishing and then he created his own publishing house to handle publishing and stuff because he was writing so much. But foreign, he did that through other publishers. You know, so he's done a mix on that. So has there been any particular rhyme or reason like on everything foreign I now do automatically through other publishing houses just because it's all the different translations and distribution and all that stuff. And then in the U.S., North America, however, you break it down to where it's well, now it sounds like you've gone the traditional now that you've got yourself a, a major name established. Well, my next, um, my next two things that come out would probably be self-published. One's, um, I don't think a publisher would pick it up. It's like a, a book written on postcards. So it's like <laughs> a four-inch by six-inch book with like 60 postcards in it, and the front and back are written on. They tell a story. And I, I know how to publish that, and I don't think anybody else would. I've done a children's picture book that we're going to take around to publishers, but if they don't want to publish it, I'll publish it myself. I hired out the artist and did all the, it's all done. It can, I could publish it tomorrow if I wanted to put it on um, iPads, but we're going to give publishers a shot at it. Sure. But I assume that I'll self-publish that if, if um, nothing happens. So I still like think of self-publishing as the default route, but now I'm working mostly on TV. I'm doing a new show from scratch for AMC that um, I've been building from the ground up is brand new IP. It's not based on anything that I've written before. And that's just keeping me busy like all day and uh, loving that. So 
It's about sailing around the world. <laughs> no, oh, that's another book that I'm going to self-publish this year. Actually, I wrote <laughs> I wrote a memoir uh, last summer that did really well in the Kindle Vela program. So I'm going to turn it into a book this year. So that's another project that's going on. And uh, no, the the new this new IP is a complete science fiction. It's like uh, it's an amazing story. Actually, just wrapped up the pilot. Uh, finish the pilot today, and I'm going to mail it off uh, with my co-author. We're going to mail it off to um, AMC uh, tomorrow. So hopefully this uh, this podcast won't go out too soon, right? Because I don't want to spoil the surprise for them. No, no, we'll just. I mean, I can have, I can schedule for whatever on this. There's they no have well by they'll have it by Thursday. But they have no idea that they're. You'll be the first to hear about this, and they're even getting it in the mail. Usually, you just email these things, but we created this crazy bespoke package. Um, where they're going to get like this leather envelope. We've stamped this leather envelope with uh, oh, wow. the logo for the show and everyone's names, and the pilot will be inside of it with some other goodies. But for us, it's all about having fun and, and letting no, the producers a play. Kind of That's feel. That's awesome. Exactly, exactly. So I'm pretty sure nothing like this has ever been done, but that's kind of sums up my, my time at writing and publishing is like don't think about the way things are supposed to be done, just what makes sense to you and what's fun, what will excite your reader, how can you make it enjoyable for them and follow those questions. Yeah, that's interesting because I don't know, maybe you heard about Brandon Sanderson with his recent um, Kickstarter with over 25 million now, but during the pandemic, because he's like what you're doing, he's just, he likes to be productive. And so here's, I got my surprise four books that nobody knew about and, um, here you go. And so then it's just people like, oh my gosh. And that's on top of all the deadlines he was making. So now, similar to yourself, now you've got you know, what you're writing already, but now here's this new surprise thing here, and here's other stuff that people don't know about that's, that's coming. And then all of a sudden you've got, hear about this and this and this. It's, it's like, it's so cool that, you know, that you're so productive in a time period where, quote unquote, the world's been shut down. Yeah. You know, this is what I tell when, when I talk to people who want to be writers I just want to know how passionate they are about it because the chances of making it you're, you're going to do it whether you're making a living at it or not you know like my mom doesn't uh, knit or do jigsaw puzzles or garden because she thinks someone's going to come offer her money for it she does those things because she's passionate about them and she she got into painting because she was passionate about it and her house is now covered <laughs> in paintings and you can just see how incredibly talented she's gotten over the years because she did a lot of it and that's the only avenue I've seen consistently for success in this industry, is you have to be so passionate about it that you would do it if they charged you to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, the way a lot of other hobbies cost money. Like people play, people go out and play golf all the time and it's expensive, and yet they still do it. Right. They're, they don't do it because they all think they're gonna make the PGA, they do it because they love it. So my advice to aspiring writers is find a way that you love doing it. Like if write stories that you love doing, write the kinds of, in the kind of structure, short story, anthology, novel, epic saga, like pick the one that appeals to you. Don't ask what the industry wants and don't think what your readers want and all that stuff. Because at the end of the day, you have to get up and spend time with it hours and hours and you can't take a day off and you have to do it for years and years. And if that sounds like a slog, Go do something else with your life right now. If it sounds like you can't believe someone's going to let you do this, that all you need is like your imagination and a laptop, then this is the industry for you. That's great. Now, the, what's your like writing regimen? 
Well, it's gotten different now. It used to be I'd write crack of dawn, like wake up at five, six o'clock in the morning and start writing until I had to go to work, write over work, uh, my lunch breaks, write when I got home, write all weekend. Once I became a full-time writer, then I could just start writing when I woke up at like 6 a.m., write till lunchtime and take my dog for a walk for a break in the middle there and in the afternoon spend more time doing business stuff or revising. These days, working uh, on this TV show, my partner's on the West Coast, so we basically write together from noon till three every day, my time, mm-hmm. and uh, that's morning his time. And in the morning, I try to get some work done based on what we had done earlier, and while I'm asleep, he's working a little bit at night, so we end up having like kind of homework away from each other and three hours a day working together. And so it's very been very different, but super productive. Oh, that's great. So then... So this is going to be taking your time for the next, what, two years or so? It's a good question. I'm having so much fun working in the TV world that if we can make, if we can get people to continue paying us to create worlds <laughs> like this, I would do it forever. <laughs> so I'm going to have two shows filming, and I think I could go insert myself into either one of those writing rooms if I had to. But I would love to, uh, my partner and I, Matt Michelados, who's one of the most talented writers I've ever come across. And so... When I had the opportunity to create this show, he and I had already decided like anything we do, we do together. So we've been, we just created this as a team. And since then we've created two other ideas that we've packaged together that our agent loves that are being shopped around. And um, he's got two other things already going. He's got a TV show that's being filmed and a feature film that just got shot. So I, I'm hoping we get to a point where we're having a turn work down and we're just able to work on um, telling stories in the TV medium for a while. Cause I love the collaborative process. I just mm-hmm. love that we get to work with teams and hang out in rooms with other creative people and, and watch other departments add their uh, creativity and expertise to our story building world building. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I would be happy doing this for maybe the next uh, four or five years and then just see where we are. And, and I don't know, it's hard to look any further out than that for me. Yeah. Well, that's that's um, that's just awesome that you can maintain that kind of control also on your on your work. So yeah, what so comes far. out the other end is what you envisioned. Yeah, I think you know the amazing thing to me is when you look at how many smart people work on these every TV show, every film, how much money is spent, even low budget stuff. It's still millions of dollars. It's still shocking that uh, how few things that come out blow me away. Mm-hmm. You know, like you hear about the shows that are spectacular and a lot of it out, a lot of it out there is just kind of meh. Yeah. And all, the people working on it are talented and the same people who worked on the so-so stuff go and work on the great stuff. So it's just for all the pieces to come together and work well is so rare. And, and that's the same, that's true for writing novels too. Like so few books that come out just blow everybody away. And so that's, that's been a bit of a challenge with getting into TV is not having the ultimate say-so at the end, that it's not going to go out the door until at least you're happy with it. But I'm willing to take that risk. It's too, yeah. it's too exciting to watch it, to watch the sausage get made. Like, <laughs> I just, I love it. I could be on set every day just watching takes and watching the crew work to make the best shot possible. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm totally addicted to it. Oh, that's awesome. So as this is the Writers of the Future podcast, it's obviously 
a lot of people that are aspiring writers. So the Writers of the Future was created in 1983 by Owen Hubbard to provide that helping hand to the aspiring writer. So, and then the Illustrators Contest started. And if you have any more children's books that you're interested in doing, I've got a whole bunch of amazing artists that I'd love to be able to introduce you to in anything in the future. Um, but we had over 700 winners over the last, well, we're about ready to issue uh, volume 38 coming up in, in April. Uh, so that's 38 years of, of uh, lending a helping hand. But um, any comments on the whole thing of science fiction and fantasy, the paying it forward, which is why I'm so excited to be able to talk to you about you know, you giving your tips and like what's worked for you and also, you know, roadblocks that you've had to overcome and how you overcame them. Any comments on that? Yeah, first off, it's such an amazing tradition in this industry. Uh, I think especially in the genres, but probably, I don't know, I, I was just had a conversation with someone uh, today who was talking about how they didn't feel like they had as much support as a literary writer as they see uh, those of us in the and the genres get, and I was, we were trying to figure out why that was. I don't know if it's because there's fewer seats on the literary bus for success, um, so it's more competitive. But in the genres, I don't know if it's where we were all ostracized at some point in our lives mm-hmm. for being geeks and being into these genres, or the fact that the books are ostracized and, and kind of put into a ghetto in, in the bookstores. Um, they're treated as other. But there's something about that that makes you band together um, the way sailors do as for mutual support and mm-hmm. safety and comfort. And um, I noticed when I first started writing that I was able to get help from people who were so much more successful uh, than I was. And I found the same thrill in trying to help people who were working their way up the ladder. Just any bit of knowledge I can get, any leg up. You know, all the writing advice I've ever thought of, I've published for free on my blog. Just, you know, here's everything I wish I would have known. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there is something really wonderful about that tradition. And I'm glad it, I'm glad it was there to help me. And it's if, I, if anything that I've ever done has helped another writer, it just uh, thrills me to pay it forward. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's in what's coming out in um, our next volume is, I think it's the last essay that Frank Herbert wrote. He was, he was sick and he, was, he soon passed after that, but it was an article he wrote for Writers of the Future of which he was a judge. And the last sentence, he basically says, you know, um, when it's all said and done, when it's your turn, pay it forward. You know, it's because um, science fiction, fantasy, and other genre fiction, there's, it's not, nobody's the competition. You know, yeah. Orson Scott Card says, I do this stuff. He's been a judge since almost the beginning and just said, look, you know, I like to read, you know, so I'm going to be able to have some control of making sure I'm going to get some good stuff to read in the future. So that's a know, great attitude. Yeah. It's all the different judges that we have are there. One of the requirements to actually be a judge is, you know, the desire to help. Obviously, you got to have success, but then the being the desire to help the aspiring writer and give them that helping hand and what to overcome. So I guess like the last question I just want to ask is any things you had to overcome that, you know, and how you were able to do that, like the roadblocks, somebody saying, you know, don't do it, or this is, you know, that they were negative, you know, that you had to deal with. Absolutely. The worst was um, when I was just trying to figure out how to make it as a writer, I was on a lot of forums and, and blogs and trying to, you know, connect with other writers who were in the same boat as me. 
and finding people who were like submitting to agents and trying to figure out how to publish. And I got on one blog or one uh, forum that was for just for aspiring writers and people querying to agents and some agents and editors would even come in and, and interact. And I just was flirting the idea that like, maybe I shouldn't be taking this contract with this publisher and I should self-publish and maybe there's a future where self-published authors make money and agents would come after us and film deals and stuff would come to us rather than us begging other people. And I was hounded out of that forum and eventually um, just asked not to come back because they thought that my, <laughs> my opinions were like too seditious and damaging to the careers of these other writers. And it was really difficult for me not to let the, how convinced they were. And they all had been in the game longer than me which took me a while to realize that it was to their detriment, not to their advantage, mm -hmm. because the industry was changing so rapidly that someone coming in like I was asking questions was actually had, a, had, a, had an advantage over them. But I didn't know this at the time. Instead, what I had was my gut telling me one thing and all these people that I looked up to telling me something different. And it would have been really easy for me to not listen to my gut and make a huge mistake and just sign away rights for, for forever. And my book would have... My books would have come out for a few months and disappeared. Instead, I, you know, owned my rights and had all kinds of bargaining power later. And anyway, just not getting sucked into that negativity and what's impossible was um, the best thing for me. And I think the fact that I'm writing in science fiction, which is just this world of possibility and tomorrow and advancements and progress, stems from the same part of my personality, the optimism and and the belief um, that things can be more amazing than the current systems. Mm -hmm. There's no, it's not a coincidence that I was in that genre and that I overcame those doubters. Um, I think they're, they're in, intricately tied to each other. That, which is awesome. Well, that's great. Well, this has been, I've had so much fun talking with you and it's, it's unfortunate that we've hit our hour mark here because um, I have another half page of questions, but that's okay. We'll do it next time. Absolutely. I'll come back on. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, everywhere else via Amazon.com. Writers and illustrators of the future are contests created by Elrond Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Hugh. Thank you, John. Thanks for having me on.